Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Casual Martial Artist with Al and Marcus. It is a lovely early March day right now, <laughs> which in Wisconsin, that's kind of a relative term, right? Right. So, yeah, I don't know about down by you, but we're supposed to be, be like 50 degrees by the middle part of the week. And then, you know, of course, then it's going to start getting colder again. It's like, yeah. So I don't know about you, but I've certainly had enough of a winter at this point. <laughs> Me too. I'm going to enjoy this summer. I don't care what I have to do. Yeah, exactly. So today's topic, and I'm going to have you lead off on this one because you had this idea, and I liked it. So today we're going to be discussing what we think would be the perfect style. So why don't you start by, tell us a little bit about what made you want to discuss this topic. I've always, since I was about hmm, 13, wanted to be a complete martial artist. Um, I didn't want to, even though the grappling revolution hadn't exploded by that time, because we're talking 87, um, I, grappling was still in my, in my periphery because, you know, we live in such a wrestling state. And the JKD people, which I followed a lot, were heavily into grappling at the time, even though it was a more, um, it wasn't as developed as you see now with the, you know, people putting Brazilian jiu-jitsu and catch wrestling and judo into everything. But um, they did put the idea out there. So that's always something I thought of. But um, I've always wanted to be fluent or, you know, proficient in all ranges and never wanted to be caught off guard by something I'd never seen before. Yeah, and, and also when you consider the time, you know, the, the time stamp there in the late 80s, you know, I think we were still pretty much in the ninja craze back then. You know, because right. as we've discussed before, you know, in the 50s, karate and judo were all the rage. And then, of course, uh, 60s, 70s, thanks to Bruce Lee, kung fu was, you know, all was, was popular. Mm -hmm. And then... Uh, for some reason in the 80s, ninjas became the big thing, which, I mean, I don't know if that's just because when Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles started to get popular, um, or we just maybe saw started to see ninjas more in comic books and, and movies. But yeah, for whatever reason, the 80s were the ninja decade, at, right. at least until, like I said, mixed martial arts and UFC came around and now, you know, now grappling and, you know, BJJ and, and kickboxing are pretty much the the arts that people think you should be practicing right okay so as far as me i mean i do agree certainly agree with you that a perfect style would be one that was balanced because and i think you made a very good point you know you don't want to be caught off guard you know you should know how to strike you should know how to defend against strikes you should know how to grapple and defend against grapples and I mean, for you, do you think weapons training is a should play a role in it? Absolutely. Yeah, because <clears throat> but I've tried to to limit that um, single stick, double stick, knife, which probably would derive from Filipino martial arts, which you're very familiar with. Um, and just so as a personal preference, staff working with the bow stick, and then firearms. Everything else, I don't get. I I wouldn't want it. Well. I wouldn't mind working with a long blade too, like having stuff, you know, to practice Filipino machete style or whatever. But uh, anything more fancy than that, like some of the more traditionally, um, say Chinese or even Japanese weaponry, uh, I don't get into that. Functionality is what I'm going for. Yeah, because I mean, I've seen 
people use Chinese broadswords doing cool forms and stuff, but yeah, let's be honest, how often are you going to be carrying around a, a functional, not a practice one, but how often are you going to be carrying around a functional Chinese broadsword or a functional katana or, you know, even if we look at Hema, you know, you're, you're definitely not going to be carrying around a functional longsword. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, at least unless you want to get, um, you know, unless you want the cops to show up with, you know, a couple cars of backup. <laughs> Exactly. So, and guns drawn. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, it's like you have you seen the Kill Bill movies? Yeah, I have. Because I think it was what at near the end of the first one, it's like the bride was about to charge in with her katana, and uh, the I forgot the guy's name, but he blasted her with um you know the shotgun, and he's like you know ain't no one that badass that they can you know withstand a couple barrels of rock salt or something like that. But right, yeah, so. I mean, I think that, so when we talk about how we would, well, let, let's go back here. Are there any styles nowadays that you think would at least come close to being a perfect style? No, I don't. Not not in themselves. Um, you have a lot of people from, like, who traditionally trained in stand-up who are now integrating grappling. And you have a lot of people who were traditionally trained in grappling integrating stand-up in their style. So, you know with MMA and with just the realities of, you know, what it's exposed, everybody, you know, most people are getting it into their heads that it's best to cost train, but I don't know of any one art that hasn't everything in it traditionally anyway. So you have to be learning at least two, probably more like me wanting to learn six or seven. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And because, um, again, you get like, you know, some martial arts, like, Krav Maga, I know, is an example where, you know, they do, you know, they do some, they do incorporate some firearms training. Mm -hmm. um, and then other than that, most of it, see, since I, I don't have any practical hands-on experience with Krav Maga, uh, pretty much anything I know about it comes from either watching the occasional video on YouTube or reading an article or something like that. And uh, as I recall, they, they, the, phrase they usually use is gross motor skills so they mm -hmm. try to focus on i think they tend to focus a bit more on offense they don't do as much with defense and blocking right. i could be wrong about that but well it was my experience that with different crowd maga schools you have a different you know you don't always know what you're going to get i mean i of course it's like that with every martial arts school but um especially a newer art you know you have to be really really vigilant about lineage and you know who trained them like i've seen great crowd maga i mean especially um some cats that i met from israel who were trained in the original kapop style you know that was a, one of the parents of crowd maga but i've seen some really awful crowd maga too that basically was dirty boxing or dirty kickboxing you know <laughs> yeah kick him in the groin and then uh run away type stuff or something like that or or you know jab him i don't know jab him Jab the eyes. Yeah, with with a boxing punch, which is cool, which is what I advocate. But there's so much more than that. I mean, you can't call that. It's basically dirty boxing. Yeah. <laughs> well, for that, yeah, that's probably the best way to explain it: dirty fighting. Right? And but then again, I mean, is there ever really ever going to be such a thing as a fair fight? I mean, even if it's just two unarmed people, uh, and maybe this is a topic we can discuss at a later time. But I, I mean, unless you have two people who you know, are almost identical in terms of the amount of training they had and what 
physical skills they have, I think it's really hard to have a truly fair fight. Right. Well, I'm I'm all for dirty fighting, but what I'm saying is why call it something else? Or why would I want to pay to go to a Krav Maga school when it's, they teach dirty boxing? I'll just go to a boxing gym and learn how to box and then figure out for myself how to fight dirty with it. I mean, you'll learn it yeah. eventually. I learned it in the ring, so. Yeah, and see, I don't, because uh, I guess the problem, I think, with some of that, you know, how you call the dirty boxing type stuff is, mm-hmm. and I know we, we've talked a little bit about this here and there, but one of the most important things of any style is live resistance. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's, you know, you talk about like kicking in the groin or gouging someone in the eyes. You're not going to do that with a sparring partner that you're just trying to work out with and, you know, expect to have that person as a training partner. Or I'm sure in a lot of schools, if they get in the habit of gouging people in the eyes or kicking them in the groin, you're probably going to have to start looking for a new martial arts school. Right. So, and and again, as we've said before, uh, this is one of the things that, you know, one of the advantages of jujitsu, judo, and other grappling-focused arts is that, you know, as long as they're trusting the tap, uh, they can go all out with less of a chance of actually, you know, risking hurting someone. You know, of mm-hmm. course, there's always going to be the potential to get hurt, but like I said, if someone gets you in a chokehold, but as long as you're tapping and they're respecting that you know, you take a couple moments to recover and then you're ready to go round two. Right. Hopefully anyway. <laughs> right. So I would, so let's uh, break it down uh, a little bit more. So the way usually, at least from my experience and my studies, usually most people define three types of combat. You've got your striking, you've got your grappling, you've got weapons training. Uh, do I know? Do, would you consider stuff like joint locking and clinch fighting more along grappling or more along the stand-up stuff? I'd consider clinch fighting its its own section. Okay. Because it's a different range. It's um, you know, I separate stand-up. Say, we'll take boxing and Muay Thai, which I think consider are concentrate on you know striking at either medium range or long range of course you can do you're going to do striking at at close range too with all those arts but with most of those arts you're going to be doing some kind of clinching when you're striking in close Mm -hmm. so i think it's its own art or its own section i I like to bracket it off as its own you know section of martial art or you know training okay yeah and that's something so then yeah that's something i never really did too much of because like in kung fu I mean, we did joint locking, but we didn't really do any as much with like clinch fighting. It wasn't like mm-hmm. you know sitting there, you know, super close range where, you know, mostly what like knees and low kicks. Knees, low kicks, how to manipulate your opponent's neck the right way and their body to position it so you can throw a move. Um, how to position your body so you can't, you know, it's it's harder to strike you in that, you know, and um. You know, simple things that you learn, like ways to deceive or ways to to faint while you're in close. You know, while you're pulling a guy's arms to try to make him move one way, and you know, you you want him to move that way because now you've got him open, and you you know, give him a shot. Yeah, and now for the martial arts that you've studied, which one do you think probably had the best uh, training method as far as striking goes? Oh. It depends on on semantics because I would say Muay Thai and boxing are if you have to do one probably Muay Thai, 
the easiest one and probably funnest one would be to do is boxing. But if you mix Muay Thai and boxing, that's probably the best. Now, for me, I'd want to, well, we'll get, get into it later in the show. But, yeah, those are probably the most complete ones. Yeah, because, um, I mean, I I always like how we trained in striking and kung fu. And this is one of the things where I think if we want to talk about an element of a perfect, you know, how we would create a perfect style. Mm -hmm. One of the elements I would incorporate is what's with Kung Fu, you trained everything from the same basic stance. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I didn't really like as much about like karate is, okay, you've got your forward stance, you've got your, you know, your back stances, you've got your side stances. And uh, because like when I was first starting to learn martial arts and doing Tang Sudo, okay, you had your forward stance and there were, you know, certain kicks that you only learned how to do from the forward stance. And then you had your back stance with most of your weight on the back leg. And mm-hmm. there were certain kicks and strikes that we only really learned how to do from that one. And then, you know, your side stance. Now, I'm sure if I would have, if I would have trained in that style longer, they probably would have started to blur those lines a bit. But one of the things I liked when I got into Kung Fu right away, all of it was from a very, the same stance, which I liked for a couple reasons. Uh, the, one of the things is when you learn how to throw all your kicks from the same stance, it gives, I think it gives you a bit more versatility because again, going back to, to Tang Sudo, we only learned how to throw roundhouse kicks from a back stance. Mm-hmm. and, you know, a front snap kick from a, a forward stance. So if I got myself used to being, okay, I'm going to throw a snap kick, I got to sh- shift into a forward stance. Okay, I want a roundhouse, I got to get into a back stance. You know, my opponent is going to see me shuffling, and they might be able to get an idea of what I'm going to do. But with right. Kung Fu, since everything was from that same basic stance, you know, once you get your knee up into that kicking stance, you can adjust your attack as needed. Right, and I agree with that concept 100%. Yeah, and the other thing I liked about the Kung Fu fighting stance, your weight was evenly distributed. Because mm-hmm. uh, one of the things I don't like about more karate-oriented styles is the focus on like back stances and forward stances where your weight's either entirely on the front, you know, or mostly on the front or mostly on the back. And right. I guess the main problem I have with that is, uh, at least for me, getting into like a back stance where most of my weight's on my back leg, I just find it uncomfortable and it puts a little extra pressure on my knees. Exactly. So, uh, that's one thing I think that a perfect martial art should do. It, it should have a stance that's natural, that's comfortable, and one that still gives you that versatility where you can do any technique you learn from that one stance. Right. So how do you feel with like fighting stances? I mean, in uh, do, would you take years more from your boxing, your karate, or your uh, kickboxing experience? Um, cross between boxing and Muay Thai. Um, I mostly keep the same one the whole time. Uh, in boxing, you can get away with putting more weight on your front foot, which I never liked even when I was doing it. I like an even distribution. So it wasn't a stretch for me to be doing Muay Thai because I – I never really liked putting it on my front foot either. I never thought I, it was safe to get away with something like that. And it wasn't even in boxing because uh, I don't know when we do our uh, fireside chat. Uh, I'll tell you about the time I got tossed, literally picked up and then tossed outside of the ring. So, yeah. Were you auditioning? So 
Was this when you were? Was this when you were audition? Was this when you were auditioning for MMA or or the WWF? No, this was. I never (laughs) auditioned for the WWF. No, this was a real boxing match, actually. Believe it or not. That wait, in a real boxing match, you can pick someone up and throw them over the ropes. You're not. Oh no, I didn't get tossed over the ropes. I got tossed through the ropes, like you know, in the middle. Yeah. Is that more of that? Hmm? Is that more of that dirty boxing you were talking about before? Yep, something like that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so as far as like uh, grappling, and again, this is always this is always going to be something that you know a lot more about than I do. Um, again, just because from my experience, kung fu didn't really get much into the ground fighting and grappling. Uh, didn't do anything like that in Tang Sudo. Uh, in the American freestyle karate, I studied. I, again, I was I was only in it enough to get some very basic drills or basic positioning. Uh, Kung Nu, as I mentioned before, it does draw some influence for Judo. So mm-hmm. far, we've just done mostly like throws and break falls. I haven't gotten, with Kung Nu, I haven't gotten into the actual ground fighting yet. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, what ground fighting I know is pretty much from getting my butt kicked by people who did either BJJ or, or, or wrestling. And, you know, after they kicked my butt, they told me how to, they told me how to use those techniques. So maybe someday I might be able to use it to kick someone else's butt. Right. So, and as far as grappling, um, I, again, I just, from what I've heard on internet forums and YouTube videos, BJJ seems to be probably the most all around, the most effective, uh, form of grappling. So what's your opinion on that? Do you think that it's pretty much the king or do you think there's other forms of grappling that maybe are a bit more efficient? It's the king, but how do I put it? It's, it's the king and it's the best one to start off with, in my opinion, if, if you don't have an experience like with high school wrestling or anything like that. But um, it's very incomplete and depending on the, the school you go to or their, their emphasis, you know, there could be holes in, in what your instructor's curriculum is. There could be holes in your training. Um, because some schools focus on tournament jujitsu, some, you know, with the uniform, some schools focus on no-gi grappling and some on MMA and some on, you know, a weird mixture of that and their old style self-defense that they used to do. And, but, you know, it depends on what you get. So there's holes and, you know, if you, you're one of those people who wants to get deep into it, you know, you'll recognize those holes and, you know, you'll seek to fill them, but you have to fill them normally from the outside. Sometimes you can fill them within because you'll have a BAJJ instructor who's got experience in those other systems and is either integrated into BAJJ or saying, well, hey, this is what I learned over here. You know, if you want to learn that, I'll show you that too. Okay. So now you said that there were some holes in it and I, I understand what you said, how there's a difference between grappling with a gi and without mm-hmm. uh, because, again, it's just going to if your opponent's wearing a gi or a similar weight of clothing, that's going to open up opportunities for you. Um, right. But so what would you say are some of the weaknesses of of BJJ from your experience? Is it mostly just that you found some places focus more on competition and others focus more on defense? With the people that I've trained with and the schools that I've been to, um, the ones who didn't have judo experience were very susceptible to a judo throw when they were jacket wrestling. That's why a lot of you see a lot of schools integrating more judo throws into it, you know, which originally was the way it was until it became a specialized martial art. And 
that's one of the things that I would add, you know, the more combination throws from judo and the grips, especially some of the more advanced grips that they have. They've got some of the, you know, crazy gripping. I don't know if you've ever seen Russian judo players. They've got some great gripping. So do you think that, and, and again, just from your, uh, your area of experience with grappling, do you think that submission holds are more important or do you think it's usually more practical just to focus on stuff that's going to um, take down and immobilize the person but not necessarily get them in enough pain to submit i like both i mean i it with when you were talking about position that's you know the big argument some people say position but you got wrestlers coming and saying no position is not the most important thing i personally since bjj was one of my uh main arts i think position is most important then submission you know submission is very important but you can't unless you know a few hooks from catch wrestling or something like that you and then you've trained a lot in them you're not going to be able to catch someone in in a submission outside of being in position you know okay okay and uh moving on to weapons and this is Mm -hmm. another area where we both certainly agree uh probably the most uh important I mean, I, I I know you mentioned firearms, which, uh, let's face it, modern world, firearms are a fact of life that you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Now, whether they should be, so I, I mean, I'm not sure if it's necessarily always going to be effective just because there's places that you can't carry them, and um, I'm sure firearms are pretty expensive. And then, again, some people just can't get one for whatever reason, whether it's a prior criminal background or sometimes people who've had mental health issues aren't allowed to purchase firearms. Um, But I I can certainly agree that stick and knife fighting is certainly the best, you know, ways to go there. Uh, Because, well, maybe my argument about, you know, some places you can't carry guns while you wouldn't be able to carry a knife or a weapon in there anyway. So maybe that's kind of a moot point. But I I mean, I guess the thing that reason I think knife is certainly good to learn how to use is because you can encounter them every day. Go mm-hmm. over to your go to you know go over to your kitchen and open a drawer and I'm sure there's probably a knife there that's sharp enough that you could use to really hurt somebody. Right. And also improvised weaponry. A lot of what you can do with a knife, you can do with a pen. That, that's true. That's a that's actually a you know good way to look at it, especially when you mm-hmm. start going into the. Um, and again, I shared this story before how when I was at that Tang Sudo regional event, where one of the seminars I was in, you know, was at it was a. Again, I can't remember if the guy was a fourth or fifth degree black belt, but he was telling us how you could use a pen for different self-defense things. Now, of course, it wasn't for more of the stabbing. It was more for like pressure point and small joint locks. Right. Yeah, and a knife defense is certainly, I think, extremely important to learn. Uh, And that's one of the things I liked when I was in Eskrima. We we did cover reactive knife defense, which, again... As my instructor said, it probably won't do much against a trained knife fighter, but against someone that just picks up a knife and thinks, you know, is going to try to use it to threaten you, but they don't really know what they're doing, it's going to, it could save, it could certainly help you out against that type of attacker. Right. Yeah. And and sticks, sticks are fun because again, they can be fairly easily improvised. And what's nice nowadays, they've got those collapsible batons. Right. So... I mean, I could, I, I've always debated picking one of those up one of these days. I want to, but I'm, you know, I'm lazy. I haven't gotten to it yet either. <laughs> yeah. And the thing that's nice about sticks is not only can you use it for, 
you know, attacking and, you know, blocking and parrying. But in a screen when you start getting into some of the more advanced levels, they start teaching you how to use the stick to aid in a takedown or in even applying joint locks. Uh, again, I think I, I shared this story about when uh, there was an Eskrima guy that came to my the place I do Kung Nu. And since he found out he, when my instructor told him that I had some, uh, you know, prior training in Eskrima, he decided to use me as his, pun his, as his punching bag and demo dummy. So that was fun. <laughs> right. So, so are there any other weapons that you think would be worthwhile learning? Um, probably not for everyone generally, but personally, I like the idea of learning how to use a long blade like a machete or a bolo. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, and those would actually be effective as well. And one of the, again, one of the nice things about a screamer is some of those, the counters and techniques that we learned with sticks could very easily translate into using it with a machete. And absolutely, mm -hmm. again, machete is one of those weapons that you can go buy at your local hardware store. Now they might not be as, you know, uh, they might not necessarily be as good quality, but still, I, I suppose in a pinch, it's better than nothing. Right. Well, this would probably still be considered under sticks, but going with some of the longer sticks, because, mm -hmm. you know, if you're carrying like a cane, uh, you know, you can carry that as and use it as a self-defense weapon. And again, you're just walking along down downtown with a cane. Most people probably aren't going to be suspicious of that. I mean, right. maybe if you're like, you know, a younger, stronger looking person, and you're walking with a cane, they might be kind of like, okay, what's going on with that? But you're probably not going to have the police, you know, pull you over and why are you carrying that cane there, son? Right. So. Okay, any other final thoughts about weapons? No, just that the I, I totally agree. The bolo stick or quarter staff, you know, whatever you prefer is also useful. Not just for the technique itself, but for balance and stuff like that. Pretty fun. And some of the stuff that you can do with a bow staff looks pretty cool. And Right. Uh, <laughs> well, I suppose if you're one of those people who likes hiking a lot, uh, learning how to effectively use a longer stick like a bow staff could actually be helpful because, well, uh, you know, I'd never know when you're going to be hiking out in the woods and then someone attacks you and you've got your nice long walking stick there and exactly use that. <laughs> Make a little popsicle. Yep. Well, now, moving on. I think another thing that is extremely important with uh, what a perfect style would do, I think there needs to be the development of tactics and encouraging the student to find their own unique fighting style. Um, whether it's something like whether you tend to be more offensive, whether you tend to be more defensive, when you tend to be more balanced. And I know um, the karate nerd, Jesse Enkamp, uh, he had a video where he was talking about he he always thought there were five different types of styles. He wasn't really referring though to the techniques you were using. It was more what your stamina was. Like there were some people. Okay, imagine you've got a graph, and you've got one type of person. They start out lower, and then they start moving up. So they get they tend to get better and stronger at sparring or fighting the longer the fight goes. And you've got people on the opposite end where they, again, they start out really strong, but for whatever reason, maybe they don't have that car the cardio endurance. So as the fight wears on, they start to to lose energy. You've mm -hmm. then you've got people that are pretty constant. And then he also had a couple ideas where there was like a 
a rainbow and an inverted rainbow where you've got people who they start out slow, they build up and then they go back down. And then you've got the opposite, the people who start strong, you know, slow down and then build back up again, which I don't know if I really necessarily call that a fighting style. I think that's more a measure of your level of conditioning more than anything else. I agree. And this is one of the things I liked about both Eskrima, Kung Nu, and also Kung, the style of Kung Fu I studied. The instructors there, it wasn't just about, here's how to punch someone. Here's how to hit someone with a stick. Here's how to take someone down. There was a lot of emphasis on, again, your positions. Um, like in Kung Nu, they all, we often talk a lot about the, the live side and the dead side of an attack. So just to give you an idea of what I mean, like let's say someone throws a right, a straight right punch at you. If you step to your left so you're on my outside, that's the dead side because it limits, you know, well, I could try to draw my fist back to attack or I could try a sidekick or something like that. It, it does limit, it does somewhat limit what I can attack you with. The right. live side would be, or well, in a screamer, they call that the outside position. And now, again, if let's say I throw a punt right straight punch at you and you do like a an outward block, and you're but you're still pretty much remaining face to face with me, Eskrima they called it the inside position, Kung Nu they call it the live side. And one of the disadvantages of that is okay, well, you've got more targets to attack, so does your opponent. You can still just as easily punch or kick me with either side as you know, as I can punch or kick you. And so just out of curiosity, I mean, you probably understand, you probably know what I'm talking about here with the, mm -hmm. those types of positions. Which one right. do you think is more advantageous? I don't know. I always play defense, so safety first approach. Yeah, and, and I, my Kung Nu instructor and I have talked a little bit about this where, I, I mean, her, her opinion tends to be it's better to stay on the dead side, where I guess mm -hmm. my opinion, it really kind of depends where you feel the most comfortable. Um, right. As for me, I actually don't feel uncomfortable on the inside position. Mm -hmm. And and again, I think it's more or less what you've really trained yourself how to do because right. there's some techniques you can do from the inside position that you or the, the live side that you can't do from the outside or the dead side. Right. So again, it's just gonna be more a matter of where you feel most comfortable. Exactly. And your opponent if they're you know, where their strength is, you wanna of course play to their weakness. That's true. And I think maybe one of the reasons I never you know, since I do tend to, I when I, at least when I was younger, and I was sparring people, um, you know, like because I mentioned before in college how, you know, I had a couple guys I sparred with who did taekwondo, and one of them did some wrestling, and then there were the occasionally the, the occasional sparring session I did with a jujitsu guy, mm -hmm. um, the, you know, one of the things there is with the inside position, it makes you more, I think it makes you more susceptible to grappling, attacks and takedowns. And since that wasn't and still isn't my strong suit, maybe I should try to adjust my fighting style right. a little bit. So. It sounds a lot like the clinch clinch position, that position you're talking about, that sort of medium range. Mm -hmm. Some people would call it trapping range. I call it clinch. Yeah. And also another thing I think that should be taught is, in addition to your striking and your ground game, joint locking. Uh, mm -hmm. And again, did this a lot in Kung Fu, you know, the shoulder locks and the, you know, shoulder locks, elbow locks, wrist locks. 
in kung fu it was we were more limited to though um getting the opponent down or trapping the opponent while remaining on your feet and the you know i guess the idea behind that was it it you you're not committing yourself to a single attacker uh because I said, if let's say someone does attack me and I manage to get a leg sweep and I put them on the ground, and but I still have control of their arms, so I have them in a wrist lock. Now, if I go down into an arm bar, of course, the problem with that is, well, if he's got a friend nearby, and I'm on I'm on the ground with an arm bar, well, I've committed my, I've committed all four of my limbs to that one person, so mm-hmm. it's going to be harder for me to defend against a kick to the head. But mm-hmm. again, if I have someone down in like a an arm if i have someone on the ground and i've got him in like a wrist lock or an elbow lock but i'm still on my feet this way if i see an another attacker coming i can always drop and run right and that was in my dirty dozen i don't know if you remember me mentioning wakigatame that's uh was that the no no that was the uh shoulder lock from you know how you yeah okay see i'm not sure if there's really a, a place where it's too early to learn about tactics uh, what do you think? Do you think that's something that a martial arts instructor should go into right away with a new student, or maybe wait till they've uh, they've gained a couple of belts? How are you defining tactics? Well, things like I was talking about, like inside position, outside oh. position, um, having a you know being thinking of ways. Well, always trying to be once one or two steps ahead of your opponent. And I'm well, not sure if. Oh, go ahead. Okay. And then. Another thing I would I would consider as part of tactics, in and we did this in both Eskrima and in Kung Nu. Uh, they mm-hmm. talked about the elements of reaction time, and in Eskrima it was, you know, there, there were the five steps of reaction time were recognition, recognizing a potential, which is recognizing a potential threat, analyzation, sizing up the situation, interpretation. Okay, that's a yes or no answer. Is this a threat or not? Strategization, you know, forming your strategy, your plan of attack, and then finally initiation, where you put your plan into effect. It's a little different with Kung Nu, um, you know, where again it, it gets a little bit more in depth in some places because there's like the five rights of self defense and the five wrongs of self defense, uh, like you know, right technique. Um, you know, right place, right attitude, things like that. And see, in Kung Nu, there's all these lists we do, we have. And the reason why is because the person who founded the style, he was a professor of entomology. Mm-hmm. And he just found that when he was in graduate school, making lists of things helped him memorize the subject. So he kind of carried that over into Kung when he was developing Kung Nu as well. So, That's what I do. Yeah. And so that's what I mean about, um, you know, the tactics. And again, there's also, like I said, the, the wrongs of self-defense, things like, again, wrong attitude, wrong people, wrong place, right. wrong technique. So that's what I mean when I say tactics, not just okay. learning how to punch and kick, but learning the best ways to punch and kick or the best techniques to use in different situations. Right. I would say about um, six to eight months after, or six to nine months, actually, after you one starts. I don't know if that's what that would be in belt, you know, grade rankings, but I wouldn't want to get the student too confused when they're trying to learn the physicality of it, you know, get the physicality down and then we'll start integrating the tactics in there. Okay. See, this is what you do. This is when, where, and you know, why you do it. Okay. 
So yeah, and I think that's probably one of the things where yeah, there's there's no there's probably no answer that everyone's going to agree on. But mm-hmm. yeah, you want to at least make sure that they get some punches, kicks, and blocks down before they you know you start throwing stuff like you know positioning and uh, you know different steps and levels of awareness on them. Right. Okay, so I'm I don't know about you, but I like to differentiate. Uh, for me, it's a five tier system in self defense. I put all in one. On its own, you know, you have your stand-up and grappling, but self-defense is on its own, and um, that's why the the little list like the Dirty Dozen we went through is, you know, would be separate. You know, you do it from a stand-up um, delivery system, usually sometimes ground, but usually stand-up delivery system. But it's got its own philosophy behind it. It's like you said, you're not going to be training in the eye gouges and the head butts and whatnot, but you'll need to know them at some point. So. Um, yeah. You know, once you've trained the athletic part, then it should be a little bit easier to be able to apply something like that. Yeah, and that's a good point. And um, and I know again, this is another one of those topics that I want to discuss at a later date. The difference, mm-hmm. you know, between fighting and self-defense. Because again, I don't know about you, but I think there is a very distinct difference between the two. Absolutely. So, and, and even you can even that can be further broken down by context and you know what you're trying to do because obviously. When I'm out with my wife, I'm not going to want to, you know, if I can avoid a fight, I'm going to do everything to do avoid a fight. You know, and my, my thing is going to be to get the hell out of there, which would probably be my goal now anyway. But how 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 much, like, what kind of force you'd use is going to depend on who you're with, you know, who's you're up against. Like, uh, if some senile old guy tries to pick a fight with me, I'm not going to do the same kind of tactics I'd do if it was like a six foot three 25 year old guy you know full of muscles so yeah that that is true and i know that's a topic that we can i think we can have a fun discussion on later uh, as well um also another thing that i think that we have to consider when you know for defining what we think would be a perfect style the training methods using that Mm -hmm. they use and again this is where uh you know bjj is great because they do a lot of sparring Mm mm-hmm where I mean, when you were studying BJJ, was there? Did you like spar almost every class, or or every class, or was it every class? Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't just okay. Here's how you, uh, your, your instructor wouldn't be like, okay, here's how to do whatever hold. Uh, it was like, okay, here's how you do it. Now you're gonna go, you know, you're gonna roll with me and see if you can apply that hold too. <laughs> Actually, it was like you get in the, you break down in the smaller groups, or you partner up and. They'd show you the technique. You'd practice it like five, six times. Maybe you'd go on to another technique. There, I'd never been taught more than probably three techniques in a class. Usually it's maybe one or two. And then after that, you get on to sparring. Yeah, and that's that's actually a good way to do it because I know in the self-defense seminars that I've attended and that I've presented, you know, one of the things we always stress to the attendees is, okay, we're just going to show you a handful of moves. And the reason why is because in an hour – yeah, I, I'm sure either one of us could show someone a dozen ways to defend against an attack, but unless that person we're talking to is either themselves a martial artist or, you know, unless they go out and practice those, they're probably going to forget most of them by the, you know, the next week. Um, so I think definitely live sparring is an extremely important part of any style. So I think a perfect style would be one that does incorporate regular sparring sessions. Mm-hmm. Again, we did some sparring in Tang Sudo, did some sparring in uh, 
uh, Eskrima, uh, did some in American freestyle karate. Actually didn't do much sparring in when I first studied Kung Fu. The second guy I studied Kung Fu with, we did a bit more sparring in his class. And Kung knew we actually do a fair amount of sparring. I, I mean, we don't do it every single class, but I would say at least three to five times a month, which, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's helpful because it's one thing to punch someone that's letting you punch them, but it's entirely a different thing to try to punch someone who doesn't want to be punched. Exactly. So now do you think, I know you've, you're, I know you're a fan of like working on with heavy bags and, and focus mitts. Do you think that those are essential parts of a perfect martial art? Absolutely. For me, that's, they're fundamental. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know if I, I don't have much experience with working with heavy bags, so I can't really testify to exactly what that does, but I certainly agree mm-hmm. with the focus mitts, uh, especially the, and I think we may have talked about this in a previous episode, but one of my, the drills I always liked that we did in, uh, I think a screamo, and I don't know if we did it in Kung Fu or not, but like you'd have someone, they'd, ha- they'd have the smaller pads or mitts and they would, you know, hold them so they were facing each other in front of their face. And that represented an opponent who was well guarded. And then what they do is they'd open their arms and those are supposed to represent breaks that you can, in their defense that you can go after. You know, and sometimes they do things mm-hmm. like, you know, one would be low, one would be high, or both would be low. And then how you wanted to attack those positions is up to you. But I always thought that was a good way to practice your reaction time. Mm-hmm. And here's one uh, that was fun from Eskrima. I don't remember what name my instructor called it, but you'd form the class would form a circle around one person, and they would you know they would bend over, and they would put their uh, they would hold their stick so it was facing the ground, and they'd like put their forehead over the butt of the weapon, and then they'd start spinning around in a circle. The instructor would start counting to ten or from ten to one, or no, would count from one to ten. And and then when the instructor said 10, you pop up and the first the person you're facing has to attack you. You have to defend yourself and then you would switch places. So the reason is by that spinning, it's supposed to represent like what if you just took a big hit from a, you know, like someone just gave you a big beefy uppercut and, you know, maybe you were a little dizzy or your head was spinning. And if the instructor was feeling like a dick, he would do things like one, two, three, four. Five, five and a quarter, five and a half, six, seven, you know, so like he would vary that right. up so you're not anticipating it. Um, so I always thought that was a fun drill. Uh, what are right. some of your favorite training drills that you did in, in your experiences? Focus mitts were probably my favorite. I also love the double end bag. Muay Thai pads, of course, were some of the funnest. And I guess... I love pl- playing with the speed bag, but even though, you know, as we mentioned before, I don't think it's very functional and very important. You know, you can be good at it if you want to, but it doesn't really say much about, I think, your skills as a fighter, even though some people are absolutely fascinated by it. You know, I was good at it, and I, you know, I even try to teach people in my boxing gym how to use it because I've been doing it since I was 13, so I knew, or 12 actually, since I, so I knew, had five years on everybody who walked through the door, but you know, not everybody could do that even after a few years, you know, so I don't know, it's fun, but it's just, 
it's not important. And you know what, of course, I think would be the absolute perfect style? Mm-hmm. If all they did was forms and practice, no touch knockouts. <laughs> okay. And high spinning kicks, right? Yes, exactly. Triple spinning jump kicks, but right, right. okay. So, any other closing thoughts for today's episode? Um, just that every style has got a hole in it. You know, there's some that are better, more that are better and more rounded than others. So, find out what the holes are. Make sure, and, and there's all, usually always another style that can cover that hole. Like, you know, Russian sambo has the leg locks, which Brazilian jiu-jitsu didn't um, specialize in. They're starting to learn more now but they are learning from the russians themselves so find out what the holes are patch them up and you know train hard yeah and i, and I think that's a good point that you're making there and, and i think that would be another uh hallmark of a perfect martial art is one that evolves mm-hmm. because i know one of the criticisms people sometimes have about traditional martial arts is how they don't want to evolve they don't exactly. want to change it's like okay We're not going to incorporate grappling because they didn't do grappling in this martial art, you know, 300 years ago. So, you know, we we shouldn't do, we're not going to do grappling now or even the opposite where we've always done grappling. We've never done striking, so we're not going to incorporate it. But yeah, I mean, I think it is important when a martial art does, you know, it should evolve. Exactly. Uh, not just, you know, there, I think a martial art shouldn't be afraid to incorporate new techniques, which is one of the things that I liked about Bruce Lee with his philosophy of, you know, Jeet Kune Do, how he wasn't shy about taking, you know, little bits and pieces of things that he liked. And as I, I think, as I said, we, I think we said it in the last episode um, that the best fighter, you know, is not you know, not a boxer or a karate or a judo man, but someone who can adapt to any situation. Well, I think that's all about I have. Uh, so if we have no more closing thoughts, then uh, certainly like to thank all of you for listening and get out there, keep your kicks above the belt and below the waist or the face. Kicks below the waist. No, that's that defeats the purpose of keep, keeping your kicks above the belt, doesn't it? Right. And if you're getting, as we said before, if you get in the habit of Kicking people below the waist, you're probably not going to have people who want to spar with you. Exactly. (laughs) So, catch you later, everyone. Check out the guys over at Eclectic Media Project. They bring you podcasts such as Musically Challenged. Whose podcast is it anyway? Want to hear something interesting? And their newest podcast, page 3.14 News. Check them out on Podbean and iTunes at Eclectic Media Project. On their website at www.eclecticmediaproject.com. Check them out as they are the home with a little something for almost everyone. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook. And follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.